Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 68, for February 13, 2020. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. In recent years, the Islamic State has lost its territorial conquests in Syria and Iraq, and its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was killed during an American commando raid. The terrorist group al-Qaeda previously suffered similar setbacks, seemingly withering from its once formidable global force that staged spectacular and deadly attacks in the 1990s and 2000s. The former British diplomat Edmund Fitton Brown heads the United Nations team charged with monitoring al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State, also known as ISIS and ISIL. Are these groups sliding into irrelevance, or are they poised to rebound from recent setbacks? ISIL's covert network uh, in Syria has been being re-established um, at the provincial level. Obviously, they knew that the defeat was coming, and you know, Baghouz was just the, the sort of coup de grace in a way, but they had plenty of time to think about what, what, what that would look like and what they should do. And they'd been doing it in Iraq since 2017 as well. So in its core area, ISIL is adapting, consolidating, and creating conditions for an eventual resurgence. That was Edmund Fitton Brown, who addressed a February 6 policy forum at the Institute's office in Washington, D.C. He shared his team's updated assessment of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State's prospects for bouncing back. He also offered recommendations of further steps Western and regional governments can take to counter them. We'll hear his briefing after this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I should tell you a little bit about the background to the monitoring team, which was established in 2004 to support the UN Security Council Committee charged with um, implementing sanctions on uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban at that time. And that, that itself sprang out of Resolution 1267. That was the sort of the father resolution for us. Um, and that was the resolution from 1999 that followed the attacks on the U.S. Uh, embassies in East Africa. Um, so uh, we were then constituted to provide the necessary uh, support for the committee in 2004. And then you have a succession of update resolutions and sort of, you know, an evolving, evolving mandate effectively. Um, and the key moments in that evolution were 2011, when resolutions 1988 and 1989 separated the committee for the Al-Qaeda from the committee for the Taliban. And the theory of that, of course, was that you, know, the, you, you were looking to redress the Taliban as uh, a future um, player in uh, Afghan politics um, and therefore not to associate it directly with uh, al-Qaeda, which was still being regarded, still is regarded as a, just a, an out-and-out -out international terrorist organization. Um, and then in 2015, um, of course, because ISIL by then had emerged as the uh, as you, know, so you remember, the sort of um, uh, very rapid and uh, uh, and very uh, startling um, emergence of ISIL, and so the the, the resolution in uh, 2015 added ISIL to the Al Qaeda committee, and ISIL has tended to dominate that committee ever since then. Although we we now try to make sure that we're not 
we haven't moved too far the other way because Al-Qaeda has certainly not gone away and remains uh, a major issue. Um, so we, we now call the committees the 1267 Committee for uh, ISIL al-Qaeda, the 1988 Committee for the Taliban. And um, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about the work of the monitoring team and the methodology. Um, and then most of what I'll be saying will be on the, on the threat, uh, the threat assessment. Um, so we are um, quite a small team. There's only 10 uh, ten sort of core members of the team employed on the basis that the UN call, calls experts. Um, what they really mean by that is independent experts. The, the, the emphasis is more perhaps on independent than it is on expert. But, um, but what, what they're saying is that they employ us to say whatever is true about these issues and not to suppress what we find or what we believe um, for political reasons. And uh, obviously, if, it, if we were UN staff members, then, you know, you've got a boss and the boss has a boss and, and, and there's a risk that, you know, you end up self-censoring. So that's the, that's the reason that we're formulated the way we are. We still have a lot of support from the UN staff, more or less doubling our strength. It's a complicated calculation, uh, but, but, but we pro we're probably almost 20 in terms of our real day-to-day -day operating strength. Um, <clears throat> And we support the Security Council, um, it, it, I think it, I'd say in two principal ways. Um, one of them is um, assessing the global threat from ISIL al-Qaeda in, in biannual reports um, and in regular oral briefings to the uh, committee. Um, and we also draft the threat part of the UN Secret Secretary General's uh, biannual report on ISIL. And then also once a year, um, we report on uh, the Taliban uh, and the threat that it poses to peace and security in Afghanistan. So that's the threat assessment part. The other part is, uh, again, as Matt said, uh, is to do with the sanctions lists, um, collecting information from member states on individuals, groups and entities uh, on both lists, um, keeping those lists accurate, relevant, detailed enough for conclusive identification if somebody presents themselves to a border official or uh, tries to open a bank account or whatever it might be. Um, and obviously, the information, both on the listed individuals and groups and on the threat, it primarily resides in member states with their uh, intelligence and security services, their CT agencies, and so hence that, 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 that's where we have to uh, make most of our uh, efforts um, in talking to those agencies. Uh, we travel a lot. Um, uh, we, we are, when we travel, we're looking to gain information about, uh, about people on the lists um, to make sure that, you know, as I say, over time, these lists are getting better. They're still not perfect, but every time we travel, we are traveling with a sheaf of entries and looking for any new information that the member state can provide photographs, fingerprints, um, more identifying detail to get to the point where you you don't have that nightmare scenario where someone presents with a name that could be a thousand different people because it's too, it's too common a name. Um, so that's, that's, that, that's that side of it. The two are exist in balance with each other, um, but for reasons I'll come to, the threat assessment perhaps has, has, um, has, has grown uh, over time, perhaps was the was the minority task, whereas these days I think it's it's at least co-equal. Um, 
There are a couple of subsidiary things that we do that I'll just mention. Preparing and presenting recommendations to make the sanctions measures, um, the asset freeze, the arms embargo, the travel ban uh, more effective. Um, and the recommendations that we produce uh, can be quite influential because the UN, when it's uh, gathering the feedstock for new Security Council resolutions on counterterrorism, will always look at these recommendations and make use of them if they can. Um, so so that's, uh, that we take that side of things very seriously. Um, and, and also, I think, I think it's probably fair to say that we have a support role in the wider UN objective of uh, enhancing international counterterrorism cooperation. And one of the particular ways that we do that is that we, we convene regional meetings of uh, counterterrorist agencies um, and uh, have found that in the process of doing so, apart from the fact that it's a very efficient way for us of accessing a number of member states at once, um, we also find that that very often creates relationships which didn't exist. And, and you know, I think some of you may find that surprising, some not. But, um, but my experience over many, many years uh, is that it's remarkable how undeveloped counterterrorism cooperation is. You know, when you think uh, when you think the uh, what a high, what an imperative there is to get it right, uh, it's not as uh, um, it's not as developed as it needs to be. In terms of our <clears throat> mo, <clears throat> we we work with member states, um, as I said, um, with UN missions and agencies, uh, hold quite a wide, wide range. Um, other relevant bodies like Interpol, um, uh, civil aviation organizations like IATA, ICAO, um, uh, World Customs Organization, Financial Action Task Force, and its regional style bodies, um, and some representatives of the private sector, you know, some, some ones that would be fairly obvious, uh, like financial institutions, but, uh, but also, you know, relevant non-financial businesses and professions, for example, when the issue of, um, of ISIL um, abusing uh, cultural artifacts and antiquities um, became acute. Um, it was important to reach out to the to the international um, antiques uh, industry and sort of you know to, to 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 learn because we in a sense again we were connecting through to the recommendations where we would be helping to suggest that things could be done that could actually help um, to uh, to suppress that particular potential source of terrorist finance. And then also within the UN, <coughs> we, uh, we work with, uh, there's a whole range of, of UN bodies that work on counterterrorism. Uh, the most recent and the largest is the Office of Counterterrorism, which is headed up by an Undersecretary General. Um, and, um, and then there is also uh, the Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, um, which is uh, subordinate to the Security Council as we are. Um, but all of these organizations need to work together because the UN uh, for the purposes of you know just efficiency and, um, and and responsible spending of money and credibility uh, needs to demonstrate that it's not operating in silos it's not duplicating needlessly um, we also work with the UN Office of Drugs and Crime um, and a whole range of um, people who are signatories to the global compact uh, which basically loosely binds together all of the UN entities that have a role on counterterrorism. Now, as I said before, we are explicitly mandated to consult in confidence with member states' intelligence and security services, and that does distinguish us from other UN entities um, and means that we offer a, a significant niche capability 
to the UN's overall counterterrorism effort. And our assessment of the threat informs uh, the uh, work of the other UN entities. Um, and one way of, one way of uh, thinking of it is that with UNOCT having grown to you know, very significant size uh, with a very significant budget, um, the decisions that are made about how to spend that money, where to build capacity in member states needs to be informed by um, properly validated um, advice. Uh, and they get that from CTED on the needs assessment where member states, you know, CTED will say, you know, we've, we, we judge that it's very important to build this particular capacity in this particular member state. But for CTED to do that, they also need an internationally validated uh, threat assessment because you, know, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't assess preparedness to meet a threat in a vacuum. You need to know what the threat is. Um, and so that, that becomes our role that we sort of, we're sort of upstream and providing the threat assessment that then cascades down and has that, um, has that uh, informing effect and uh, validating effect on the decisions made by bigger UN bodies. As I said, we do these closed regional meetings. Um, they, they can be very effective and they're also a, a really useful reminder um, of, uh, of the, the way that member states do and don't talk to each other. And because of our role in that, we also get involved in some of the bigger meetings, which are called uh, by the UN every two years to have a what they call a high-level event, but it's a global meeting of um, sort of heads of intelligence and national security coordinators and such like. Um, and, and we have a key role in, in that because those are essentially our constituents. Um, and we also uh, always attend the um, there's a there's a conference which the Russians organise once a year, um, which again is a global in its scope um, and again very very useful. And we have a we have a fairly prominent role in that. Um, we're also mandated by various resolutions to develop information on specific issues during our consultations with member states. So foreign terrorist fighters or FTFs, I'll probably say, people trafficking and sexual violence in conflict. Uh, illicit trade in antiques and cultural property, as I said, uh, terror finance in general, um, links between terrorism and organized crime, uh, terrorist acquisition of arms, uh, and threats to the security of aviation. So those are sort of, if you like, sort of um, components to what we try to consult <coughs> on when we're, when we're doing this. Moving across to the threat itself, um, I'll draw on the 25th report, which, um, as you know, um, has recently been published, um, which we actually completed at the end of December. It covers the second half of 2019, uh, but, but I'll, I'll also mention one or two events from earlier in the year that seem still to resonate. Obviously, first of all, the, the really big one, the military defeat of ISIL. Um, in eastern Syria in March 2019. Um, that, was, that was, I think, a huge shaping event, partly because of the end of the geographical caliphate, which was a really important thing, you know, sort of, I should say so-called caliphate. Um, but, um, you know, that was, I, th I think, to, to, to remove that abuse from the face of the earth was, I think, a, a very uh, positive development. But of course, a lot of things happened as a result of it, um, including um, a larger than expected, perhaps, movement of refugees and fighters. Um, and so you have, you know, then obviously problems that have flowed from that, the overcrowding of the Al-Hal camp, a whole range of other um, facilities. 
and, and creating um, what is obviously a security challenge, but is also, uh, of course, primarily a humanitarian challenge because you've got a huge number of people here who are affected, who, who, um, who are caught up in this um, to some degree against their, against their will. Secondly, um, uh, I, again, I just, just mentioned now, but we'll return to the point about um, the Sri Lanka attacks in April. Um, because that on Easter Sunday was, 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 was obviously a very, very big event. Coming back to the present day, um, in Syria, where the government has taken, retaken control, um, there is a lot of unrepaired damage, there's alienation, and, and only really an uneasy peace. Um, and of course, in Iraq, there are also a number of severe problems, um, overcrowded detention facilities, an overloaded judicial system, internally displaced persons, uh, intercommunal tensions, uh, a reconstruction deficit, uh, which of course is also uh, huge in Syria. Um, and then, you know, nearby in Turkey, you have, you have this concern about the fate of uh, you know, three and a half million um, Syrian refugees. So these are, these are massive, massive issues. Um, ISIL's covert network uh, in Syria has been being re-established um, at the provincial level. Obviously, they knew that the defeat was coming, and you know, Baghouz was just the, the sort of coup de grace in a way, but they had plenty of time to think about what, what, what that would look like and what they should do. And they'd been doing it in Iraq since 2017 as well. So in its core area, ISIL is adapting, consolidating, and creating conditions for an eventual resurgence. Um, that's the objective. Um, and encouraged by political tension, I guess, practical disconnect between some of its state adversaries, um, ISIL is operating ever more openly and confidently um, in recent months. Um, northwestern Syria should be particularly mentioned as a, uh, you know, a highly problematic place, both from political and security and humanitarian perspectives. Um, uh, one of our member state interlocutors described it as the world's largest dumping ground for FTFs. Um, there are certainly a lot of FTFs there. Um, the current military escalation has displaced large numbers of civilians. Um, you've got a situation where the main, the most powerful group in the region is Al-Qaeda aligned. It's Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, previously known as Al-Nusra Front or you know, an evolution of Al-Nusra Front, if you like. Um, and then there's a more purist sort of globally focused Al-Qaeda affiliate called Haras al-Din, Guardians of Religion. And these groups are determined to resist um, the, uh, the, effect, the advances of the, uh, of the um, authorities in Damascus and their allies. Um, ISIL is present in the area, but they, this is not their fight. They, 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 will, they will use the area for facilities for as long as they can. Um, and, uh, and, and they certainly won't try to, they won't aim to lose any personnel trying to defend ground in that part of Syria. So the return, I think the return to normal in Iraq and the Levant will not be easy. Um, the, one fears that there is always going to be some space that is exploitable by extremists. Now the other major event of 2019 in the core area was the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in late October. Um, uh, you'll remember that obviously very, very vividly, so I won't say much about it. But, um, but, but he, interestingly, before, shortly before he died, he'd urged efforts to free 
fighters and dependents um, accommodated in the various camps and facilities in the in the region, um, and it's worth worth remembering that that sort of legacy um, call from him before he died. Um, the existing provisional holding arrangements of ISIL-linked detainees and internally displaced persons um, and refugees of general general refugees by local uh, Kurdish-led militias are very precarious arrangements. Um, and you know, quite a few uh, fighters dis uh, had escaped in October. You know, because of because of um, geostrategic events affecting the region. Um, the general feeling in the international community is that this is, this should serve as a wake-up call to address this problem as being you know the urgent problem that it is, um, and that perhaps um, perhaps the sort of the precariousness of the situation will incentivize a a more durable solution. Many ISIL leaders are alive and hiding still uh, in Iraq um, and uh, and in Syria and some slightly further afield. Um, ISIL is discriminates between its personnel. It's very striking that since it entered its sort of final military death throes, um, that uh, it started to see foot soldiers and particularly FTFs, or at least many FTFs, as being dispensable. Um, leaders and key seniors are being protected. Um, and Syrians and Iraqis are favored over foreigners. Um, and I think that somewhat cavalier attitude to the foreign contingent may, may cost them in terms of future opportunities. Um, it's worth remembering that the, uh, the, the threat from ISIL in terms of the projected international threat is very much reduced these days compared from its peak in 2015-2016. Um, you know, of course, there are many re there are regular local operations in the core area and in some other conflict zones as well. Um, it, but directed international attacks are dramatically reduced, uh, as are facilitated attacks and inspired attacks. And it's one of the things that we have, that we have to remember, people who observe counterterrorism or, or are practitioners of counterterrorism, that sometimes you also do have to communicate where there's a relative level of success, because otherwise, you know, when things get more difficult again, then you know that's uh, that, that 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 you that you have to you have to you have to be clear with people that that a world without terrorism you know completely without terrorism much as we would aspire to it is 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 extremely difficult to achieve and the relatively low level at the moment of a projected isil threat is a is a success of sorts um now this situation has persisted for a couple of years now you know 2018 2019 the level was very much reduced um I don't think this will last indefinitely. It's difficult to predict at what point the threat may rise again. But I think once its, once it's survival is assured, and I think there's some sense that it feels some confidence in the last few months that its survival is more or less assured, um, it will invest in its external operations capability. And that could happen in unexpected locations. I mean, the obvious location would be in Iraq or Syria, but um, it's not impossible. It could be elsewhere. Um, ISIL certainly has the financial reserves to assist in this when it, you know, as and when it is looking to, um, you know, sort of develop capability again. Um, it's, uh, we have estimates which vary between about 100 and 300 million US dollars in terms of ISIL's financial reserves. These are very approximate estimates. And they're also, I should qualify that even giving those figures with, you know, how liquid are they? How available are they? 
who has access to them? I mean, these are all big questions. Um, but still, uh, it's it, it, the legacy finance from having had the resources that it once had um, mean that it still has the financial capability to do certainly more than it's currently actually operationally equipped to do and, 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 and more besides. The key criteria, I think, for re reconstituting a sort of ex-ops capability um, will be the time and space in a safe haven to start to project an organized threat. We've seen some signs of this happening um, at various times in various places. Um, and in the longer term, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty clear that both ISIL and Al-Qaeda will want to have those strategic options for their surviving leaderships. It's interesting to note Al-Qaeda's conservatism over resourcing operations. Um, it tends to prioritize administration and salaries. And, you know, obviously these things are important if you're going to hold the group together and then, you know, welfare payments and things of that kind. But Harassadine in, uh, in, in Idlib um, has elements with external attack planning ambitions, um, including a lot of foreign terrorist fighters, but they are short of money. Um, and that's, uh, that's an interesting dynamic. Um, we learned, obviously, in September that Hamza bin Laden had been killed sometime previously. Um, Ayman al-Zawahiri is in poor health, so it's important to analyze in what direction Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who is the presumed successor, will take al-Qaeda um, in the medium term. Um, again, I'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, but going back to ISIL, um, following Baghdadi's death and the public announcement of his uh, successor, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashmi al-Qureshi, um, I think it is going to be difficult for the group to implement this leadership transition. Uh, the Arabic speakers among you uh, obviously recognize the name as a combination of nom de guerre and claimed honorifics. Um, it, it, it's effectively useless for the purpose of identification. Um, but there is unconfirmed reporting, which we, you know, we mention it in our report, uh, that Abu Ibrahim is Amr Muhammad Said Abdurrahman al-Mawla, um, who is an established ISIL senior who previously served as Baghdadi's deputy. Um, and in fact, the, the, I think the, the best sort of um, picture and information about him is probably the U U.S. State Department sort of most wanted. Uh, I think he's I think he's up there for five five million dollars or something of the sort. Um, and uh, and it's, so important, it will be important to establish whether 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 he is indeed the new leader. Abu Ibrahim, uh, which I'll use to describe the new leader, since we can't be sure that it's Al Mola. Um, Abu Ibrahim was, was treated to a sort of Mexican wave of pledges of allegiance from ISIL supporters around the world. Uh, and that showed um, that the ISIL propaganda operation is still in good order. Um, but of course, sustaining that level of enthusiasm may not be straightforward. Um, they may feel the need for him to speak to the, you know, to the organization, to the world. Um, and if they try to flesh him out, for their followers, then they may they may of course put him put him in danger. Um, so, so one possible one possible effect of this transition, if they are cautious about that, is perhaps to accelerate the um, uh, to accelerate the delegation of authority in the group, um, which is already happening anyway, um, uh, from the core to the affiliates. Um, and so, even if even if the strategy in the core remains constant, I think that probably that trend will be, will be accentuated.
But the organization, you know, ISIL, ISIL is well supported um, and it is expected to endure, um, even if in an increasingly divergent global form. So I mentioned these Sri Lanka attacks um, Easter Sunday um, uh, last year um, as an important sort of case study of that sort of global, um, uh, global sort of networked threat uh, or inspired threat. Um, ISIL Corps knew nothing about those attacks uh, in advance, and Baghdadi referred to them in his late April uh, video, but it was a tacked-on audio sort of PS, um, an afterthought. Um, but the fact of the matter is that an ISIL-inspired group had incubated in Sri Lanka um, and developed a significant capability. Um, it had foreign links. Um, some of the members of the group had traveled um, to various places, including Syria. Um, but it was locally generated and financed and led. And the shock value and the scale of the attacks, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of people dead, um, uh, that had an, had an impact, um, especially as they, uh, they said that they were taking revenge, not just for the fall of Baghuz, but also for the, uh, the Christchurch attacks. Um, and that's, that's troubling in terms of the sort of the clash of civilization sort of narrative, um, which, which could, I think, if it, uh, if it develops, could, could be, become more problematic in terms of, you know, call and response type uh, attacks. At any rate, I think for sure we should expect to see more inspired attacks of this kind this year, um, and particularly now with the new motive of avenging Baghdadi's death. Um, but hopefully not on the same scale, because that was, uh, was unusual. Um, the great majority of uh, inspired attacks tend to be relatively low impact if they succeed, and, and the great majority don't succeed. And this is one reason why ISIL needs to re revive its ex-ops capability. Um, if they, they, they just can't rely on inspired attacks to, for, to, 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 to always give the, the impact that they're looking for. ISIL's center of gravity um, outside um, the core area, and particularly in Asia, is, is Afghanistan. Um, and our 1267 committee recently sanctioned IS Khorasan province, um, or ISIL-K, as a separate entity. Um, this is just a, you know, simply, simply the matter of demonstrating that, you know, ISIL-K is a, sli it's sli it's a special case in some ways. Um, uh, it's also highly relevant to what's happening uh, more broadly in Afghanistan. Um, Despite taking casualties on many fronts against Afghan security forces, coalition troops, and of course the Taliban, which has been, you know, hammering ISIL-K, um, nevertheless it is resilient and it's been launching attacks, um, including in Kabul, with uh, an impact disproportionate to the actual numbers uh, of the group. Um, they've had a very difficult year, um, uh, and it ended. Um, with the near eradication of their presence in their base area of Nangarhar province in eastern Afghanistan. Um, we now assess their fighting strength as being reduced, you know, to a maximum of 2,500. Um, and it's likely that the remnants from Nangarhar will come under pressure in Kunar, where a lot of them have taken refuge uh, to the north. Um, but still, it's, it, it's quite successful in recruiting. It's getting new recruits, particularly from academic institutions in Afghanistan, um, you know, including you know, students at Kabul University and things like that. It's very troubling that it has that appeal. Um, 
And Afghanistan is, is certainly an arena in which ISIL might develop an external operational capability. Um, obviously, Afghanistan has got broader um, extremist issues. Uh, there are many Al-Qaeda or Taliban-aligned extremist groups present. Uh, the Central Asian neighbors of Afghanistan are always worried about the potential for a cross-border threat um, uh, from these people as well as from ISIL. Um, at the moment, that threat is constrained by the Taliban because the Taliban has a strong vested interest in in being seen as a, an organization that is not seeking to, you know, is in fact actively seeking to prevent uh, Afghanistan uh, being the source of an international terrorist threat. Um, but Afghan politics and the peace process are evolving and it's not clear what the developments in the peace process will do in terms of affecting the external threat from, Af from, from groups in Afghanistan. It's obviously vital to revive the talks and bring peace to the country. And indeed, that's the main driver for the 1988 committee work that we do. Um, but there may be a short-term cost, for example, in terms of driving tar Taliban irreconcilables to join ISIL-K uh, or, or the affiliates who are, the, the, the FTFs who are affiliated with uh, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban to become more active. So I mean, there, are some, there are some variables there that need watching. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the imperative to... to progress that peace process is obvious. Um, so ISIL, um, in the process of this devolution that I spoke about, um, has uh, has sort of pursued something of a, a, what, what looks like a hub-and-spoke sort of approach, where they, they're pushing some authority out to the more developed remote provinces and using them as conduits for supporting some of the less developed, uh, less developed ones. So, for example, IS West Africa province in, in, uh, in the Lake Chad Basin, uh, northeastern Nigeria, um, has grown in power and ambition, and it now claims attacks on behalf of IS Greater Sahara, uh, which, is, uh, which itself exists much further uh, west, um, primarily in Mali, um, into Niger. Um, and a continuum of instability seems to be emerging in West Africa and the Sahel, and this is a major concern for the UN um, and the international community more generally. Um, extremists, I think, are seeking deliberately to threaten fragile regional states. Um, the Al-Qaeda-aligned coalition that calls itself Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin, Jainim, um, exploits local tensions. It takes, it takes on local issues, things like the uh, tensions that exist between uh, nomadic populations and settled populations um, and tries to exploit these and to use them as a source of radicalization and polarization um, in these in these areas and 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 they also interestingly they de deconflict with isgs greater sahara um, in mali and niger uh, and also with ansar al-islam in burkina faso and that i think that deconfliction is interesting again you know there's no sign of a reconciliation at the core level between ISIL and Al-Qaeda. And indeed, when Baghdadi died, some of the most um, brutal um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of commentary was from Al-Qaeda sort of saying, well, you know, that's, that's what happens when you, when you sort of defy, um, you know, divine will and act in that kind of, um, you know, they, they, really, they really put the boot in. Um, but there in the Sahel, uh, it's really striking that this deconfliction and even an element of 
operation co operational cooperation exists between the groups and it shows i think the al qaeda has always been has always delegated a lot to its regional or, or regional affiliates and and with isil increasingly doing the same it means that local or regional dynamics may take over in some of these places and create you know unexpected um uh, alliances of convenience um we, the monitoring team, held a West African regional meeting uh, during the autumn and heard acute concerns about violent extremism in the region, some of it supported from outside. Um, and um, the wider UN and the, international, uh, and the international community, I think, is increasingly concerned about this. Um, there's clearly work needed on the wider front to boost development, um, not just counterterrorism, but you know, wider development and to bolster resilience within those um, societies, countries, uh, and um, structures of authority to avoid contagion from these terrorist groups to some of the jurisdictions on the coast of the Gulf of Guinea, uh, which are up to now relatively unaffected, but where there's, there's a clear risk of, uh, of, of contagion coming across the, their northern borders. I don't have time, to obviously, to touch on all of the uh, areas of concern. You know, the team's mandate is global. Um, in Europe, I will just say, I, I think that it, it's troubling that authorities seem at cross purposes and unsure how to deal with the sort of the cocktail of CT challenges that they face. Self-radicalized lone wolves, you know, domestic extremists, um, the issue of returning FTFs, um, frustrated travelers, people who would have liked to have gone to the conflict but didn't make it for one reason or another. Um, and then radicalization in prisons um, and the release of extremist prisoners. So all of these things are troubling and they, and they overlap with each other and can seem quite uh, daunting, I think, in some European countries. Um, you know, the, the, the resources to address these issues, to make sure that you're actually managing de-radicalization programs in prison, preventing people from becoming radicalized in prison, um, you know, these, these are... These, these are um, challenging even for wealthy countries and of course they're even more challenging for a lot of uh, developing countries um, and I think it's worth you know just highlighting those two recent attacks in London over the last few months as um, as sort of illustrative of that particular issue where you know the sort of um, uh, all of the processes are ostensibly in place but still people are, but people are still coming people are still coming out of uh, prison you know and then and then carrying out attacks so ISIL's military defeat and the death of Baghdadi, um, these things should be welcomed as good news. But the whole nexus of, of, of issues coming out of the period of the so-called caliphate, what to do with the people who fought for it, worked for it, lived under it, um, is a massive issue in the short term and beyond. The numbers are huge. Uh, more than 40,000 people traveled to join that fight. And a rough calculation of the attrition rate suggests that, you know, maybe 25,000 plus uh, of those people may still be alive. Um, so the question then arises, you know, what future do they have? What do they, what's, what's their intent? Um, what might be the so-called blowback ratio? You know, how many people are determined to continue to, to try to um, carry out um, violence of one sort or another? There are detainees, there are fugitives, there are returnees and relocators. Um, uh, women who, in many cases, may be as dangerous as the men. Um, there are minors, um, and many of those are undocumented. 
um, and some of the older ones are hardened, brutalized. Um, so I think the international community faces short, medium and long term risks if if we mishandle this in any way. Uh, it's a generational challenge. And I, I was I was cite what for me is the personification of that was the Indonesian FTF who was killed in Syria in 2018, who was a small child when his father took part in the 2002 Bali bombing. Um, so I think I think, uh, you know, usually when I'm talking to um, foreign foreign officials, intelligence, security personnel, I always say, you know, you know, you may have a you may be on a tour of duty that lasts for three years or five years. Um, politicians are on an electoral cycle, but I mean, I think for the sake of um, for the sake of what the world will look like in 2040, it's very important that we we aren't trapped in the calculations that are based on this year or next year or the next just the next few years. Don't want to sound too pessimistic um, in all of this, but but I, I fear that I fear that the, that we'll all be interested in this job and um, this area of business and studying it for a very long time. I think the underlying conditions which created ISIL are still there. Um, and this strain of terrorism, I guess, will be with us for the foreseeable future. Now, whether that's in the form of ISIL uh, under, you know, new leadership, um, Al-Qaeda sooner or later under a successor to Zawahiri, um, or mutations, sort of this, the, the, sort of the mixture of, uh, uh, of sort of jihadi nationalism, some people call it, um, uh, you know, um, coalitions like JNIM in that sort of, uh, sort of creating a slightly new, uh, modus operandi and um, and sort of set of priorities, or indeed some new brand, of course, because it's not as if uh, it's not as if Islamic State was all that well known, um, you know, um, not so many years ago. And so we, we should we should be alert, I think, to the emergence of, you know, a, a new brand potentially as well. This has been Middle East Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance this week from Corey Francis. For more research and analysis on the Middle East. Find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.